getting you set for everything Cardinals. In his second game as a Cardinal. Three home runs. This is the Redbird Report Show with Danny Mack. Out there. On 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com. Welcome into the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we will hear from Chris Welsh, the television analyst of Cincinnati Reds baseball. And he also runs the website for everything that concerns the rules of the game. We'll jump into that as well. Patrick Risch, local sports economist, will also be my guest and we'll talk about the financial hit the teams are taking during this time. But let's start with some of the news in the game of baseball. Could there be baseball at some point this season? Dr. Fauci was a guest of Jack Curry last week of the Yes Network. You could either have a situation where you get the group of players and you put them in a few cities, you make sure they're not infected, you test them so that they don't infect each other. And you have baseball in no, as much as it's tough to say, in a spectator-less environment where you have people playing in an environment in which people can watch it on television. I mean, it's the revenues are not going to be the same as when you have a packed stadium like Nat Stadium in Washington. But I think having them play on television is certainly better than nothing. Another version of that is to limit the amount of people in a stadium and make sure you seat them in a way where they are really quite separated and maybe even wearing the facial covers that are masked. I know people look at that and they say, what are you, crazy? But to me, it's better than no baseball at all. So that's potential progress. Buster Olney of ESPN understands there might be baseball, but how do you cut up the potential financial pie? Right now, there's a major disagreement between uh, Major League Baseball and the Player Association over what the financial split of the pie would be if, in fact, baseball comes back. And this is of increasing concern both to management officials and to agents that I've spoke with. Now, Agent Scott Boris has argued that the 2020 contracts should be honored. That would be on a prorated baseball if baseball comes back. The union had uh, Tony Clark put out a statement saying the negotiations are over. On management side, they feel like that given the financial hit that baseball's taken, there needs to be some salary rollbacks. Look, there is increasing optimism that baseball will be played this year in some form, perhaps in front of fans. However, that can't happen unless these two sides uh, come out of their trenches where they are right now. The finances, something that has to be figured out. Every week, I visit with Brian Walton of thecardinalnation.com. It's pretty hard for me to imagine that as smart and as articulate as these parties are, that they didn't lock down in, in writing what they meant when they put the first salary agreement in place. And what we're talking about is the you know, $170 million advance to players for the months of April and May. And by the way, that, that, while that sounds like a lot of money, 5000 bucks a day per major league player, that $170 uh, million is compared to $4 billion of what the normal major league salary would be for those two months. But there's a disagreement because the players said, hey, you know, this agreement that we had in place that we would get a prorated amount of our regular season pay for whatever number of games we can play, you know, assumed that we all assumed that you know, there's a possibility that these games will be played in empty stadiums. And the owners are saying, no, no, our assumption was at that point in time, we were assuming we'd come back to our cities and have full revenue. So, you know, there's this debate, even if all the medical issues and the logistical issues could be worked out, the players and the owners aren't in agreement on what rate the players are going to get paid when they come back. So, you know, they've got to go through now another round of negotiations and the two sides are, you know, at least in their public words, you know, digging in. 
What do you think the appetite is for players to play in front of uh, empty stadiums? Well, from you know what we're trickling out, they're they're not excited about it. You know, they you know get mo- let's face it, they get motivated by playing in front of fans and the sounds and the smells and the excitement and all. And but on the other hand, if the option is not playing at all, uh, you know, if everything else can be worked out, I'm sure the players would rather do that. And we're seeing that, you know, for example, in Korea, they're you know getting ready to start up and. You know, they've uh, made it interesting by putting mannequins in the, in the state and that type of thing. But, you oh, know, boy. everybody wants everybody wants to go back to real normal. But I think everybody realizes real normal is not going to be possible for a while. So you just hit the nail on the head. This is maybe the best option that we have right now. I, I find it fascinating when you've got guys that have made generational type money and saying, well, I'm here and I may have to be quarantined. And does it include my family? Does it not? And maybe the appetite for a younger player that wants his bite at the apple is, I'm willing to do it because I want to make the most money I can. I, I find that to be an, a really interesting dynamic going forward with this. It really is. And we've seen, you know, some of the major names in the game, Mike Trout, Kershaw, Adam Wainwright even, you know, talking about this trade-off of, you know, maybe not wanting to make that commitment to leave one's family for multiple months and, you know, be, play in this quarantined environment. But does that mean that the game will stop without them if a majority of the union members vote to go play? You know, it might be that uh, baseball comes back and some of the names that, you know, we were expecting and hoping to see were missing. But folks want to see baseball, and, you know, baseball will likely go on whether all the names are there or not. We want to see the best players. Everybody wants to see the best players. But we also understand we are craving sports. We're craving baseball. We, we have found that out. In Americana, we miss sports in a major way. It means so much to our economy. It means so much to maybe our relaxation at night, whatever the case may be. I, I do find it interesting that if some of the big players or maybe some guys that are at the end of their career just say, you know what, enough's enough. I've had a great run. I'm done. Others could say I'm done till 2021. Maybe that's on the table too. I don't know. And, you know, I don't think anybody is going to disrespect or put pressure on someone to do something that they don't feel comfortable doing. So, you know, initially I was a little worried that the peer pressure thing might, you know, cause guys to, to, you know, come in maybe when they, when they, uh, you know, weren't a hundred percent committed to do it. But when you see some of the major name, you know, major guys potentially uh, make those kind of statements, it, it makes it more comfortable for people to make the right decisions for them personally. And that's the way it ought to be. In terms of payment in major league baseball through the month of May, what are you hearing? Well, there was an agreement to pay the non-playing members of the full-time staffs through the end of May. And each team was doing it individually, but pretty much now everybody's come along with it. Major League Baseball made an announcement as well that their executives were going to take a 35% pay cut, and they would pay all their full and part-time employees through the end of May. So the end of May is kind of this major deadline for everybody, all the employers, all the players. But one of the things that happened also the other day that maybe folks didn't notice was that Major League Baseball suspended their uniform employee contracts effective May 1. What that means is that all, that all Major League Baseball and their teams now could, effective May 1, so not quite yet, but soon, could lay off or reduce the salaries of any of their full-time employees, and that includes – uh, major and minor league managers, coaches, trainers, uh, you know, the full-time scouts. So nobody's done it yet, but sort of the door is now open that come 1st of June, if there's not a clear way to get back, 
uh, we could start seeing both layoffs and salary reductions across baseball, which they pretty much you know avoided to this point. I know you dive into the draft. I'm very curious how teams are handling the draft with video, uh, with their previous reports. Uh, obviously, kids at this level make great adjustments. They get better. Some tail off. Some are, don't have as good a year or whatever the case may be. I would think that they, those guys got to be, you know, guns a-blazing to get going. And uh, in essence, it's a key time for that part of the business of baseball. Would you agree? Yeah, and, you know, the interesting thing about the draft, a lot of folks think that there's major changes that occur in the spring season, the year of the draft. And the reality is, I'm sure if Randy Flores was here on a call with us, he'd tell us, you know, hey, they've already scouted a 1,000 players, and they pretty much know who they want. Now, would they make adjustments had the college and the high schools played the spring? Sure, they would have. But the original decisions that came down, you know, prohibited contract contact between scouts and players, and they've relaxed that such that it seems to me, and especially if the draft is limited to five or ten rounds, uh, that you know teams are pretty well equipped to hold a draft whenever they decide. Now, you know, it, it, they could wait until July, in fact, to hold the draft. And you know, if there's no minor league season, which it, you know it's feeling more and more like all the time, there's certainly no hurry to to hold the draft because there's not going to be anywhere for the guys to go play anyway. We've heard a lot about the Arizona plan and the bi- the biosphere, if you will, for all teams in. Arizona. Then we've heard a little bit about, well, maybe you're going to be in Arizona and Florida. And now we're hearing, in addition to that, maybe even Texas. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting. The the One of the limitations of the Arizona plan was that you've got to bring so many people in one place. Do you have enough facilities to play the games? Do you have, you know, and by the way, all those games are going to be playing at 10 p.m. Eastern time, 9 p.m. Central time, because it's so dang hot in Florida, in uh, Arizona, other than, you know, the one dome stadium. So then the Arizona and Florida idea came up and said, well, you know, you could put these teams in spring training in all their own facilities. The problem with that is, in order to schedule the, the play, the leagues have to be re and the divisions have to be restructured around where their spring training camps are. And that keeps you from resuming the regular season because the division the Cardinals are in would be against the Mets and the Marlins and the you know Houston Astros, and that would not work from a travel perspective. So now there's a third idea that, that popped up Monday night from uh, RJ Anderson, CBS Sports, that said, hey, you know, there's another proposal to put a third of the teams in Texas. So now you got uh, the West Coast time, you got Central time, you got Eastern time. And in that format, you could take the two Central divisions, the American League Central Division, the National League Central Division, and put them in Texas. You have the Eastern divisions in Florida and the Western divisions in Arizona. So, you know, from a from a organization, division, uh, competition, broadcast perspective, there's a lot of reasons why that works. The question, and plus, you know, they got a couple of domes in Texas as well, which which helps with the scheduling. But, you know, it also is an environment where you've got to then, you know, go into new areas where you've got to have all the testing and the and the uh, quarantining and the necessary uh, security and, and safety to play these games. So, you know, there's no magic plan that, that's going to work, but it's another interesting idea that, that's popped up. That's Brian Walden of thecardinalnation.com. He has... Info every single day on the Cardinals minor leagues and the major leagues and all the news around baseball does a great job. Coming up, we'll visit with Chris Welsh of the Cincinnati Reds broadcast team. This is the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. 
We are right back to it. More Cardinals talk right now. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. One of my favorite people in the business of baseball, Chris Welsh, former Major League pitcher and now longtime analyst with the Cincinnati Reds. He also runs a website that will not only teach you about the rules, but uh, bring you in. It's interactive as well. Chris, as always, uh, I, I miss seeing you. It's great talking to you, but uh, hopefully we'll see each other in person fairly soon. How you doing? I'm doing great, Danny. You know, we were we were uh, scheduled to to meet up on opening day in Cincinnati, the parade and the Cardinals and everything else. It's uh, it's one of the big matchups that I always love when the Reds play the Cardinals because I, I I get to see a couple of teams that I really like and get to hang around you. So uh, thanks for having me on today. You got it. I miss playing golf with you. I miss seeing you on opening day, and I I really miss seeing what this rivalry would have been like in 2020, and maybe we'll still. We'll have that chance, but what what were your expectations for the Reds coming into the season? Well, very high expectations. You know, the Reds, I think, uh, the front office, that is, took a look at their roster and said, hey, we don't think that we're going to have a better starting pitching rotation uh, in the next few years than we do right here in 2020. So the winner of 2019-2020 is the one they decided to go for it. Uh, they went out and they spent a lot of money. They committed more than $160 million in free agents. Uh, they made some trades. Uh, they decided to bolster their offense a little bit, bring in guys like Mike Moustakas and, and uh, uh, Nick Castellanos uh, to, to get already a pretty decent team over the edge. And I think that that was part of it, Dan. I think the other part of it is that, that they see the window of uh, Joey Votto being a, a high you know, quality caliber, possibly MVP type player beginning to close and close quickly. So you want to also take advantage of that. So I think everybody in Cincinnati had great expectations for this ball club. What did that lineup look like, uh, especially towards the tail end of spring when you're playing your regulars and you're seeing Moustakis, Castellanos, uh, Suarez, Vado, some of the others? And I know there's some injuries mixed in there, but you didn't have the full complement. But what was it looking like as you were heading towards uh, that opening day matchup with the Cardinals? You know, the interesting part of the lineup was at the very top for me because the Reds went and they signed their first ever Japanese free agent, Shogo Akiyama, uh, who's a left-handed hitter, not a big power guy, but he was always a very good on-base percentage player over in Japan. And I think that they, the Reds thought that his skill set would play pretty well in the major leagues in the same way. He would probably platoon a little bit, maybe with a young player named Nick Senzel. I think you got to look at him last year. He came into camp injured with a shoulder injury, but you know he should be ready to go right now. Uh, so I think that that would be the top end of the lineup. Joey Votto would probably be in the number two spot. And then from there, it would be the Suarez or Moustakas or Castellanos, however David Bell wanted to play the lefty-righty matchups. Uh, and I think the good thing for the Reds, at least in their fan standpoint, is that they've got some firepower. They would have some threats in that lineup as far as power hitters all the way down to the, you know, probably the number seven spot and even the eight spot. Freddie Galvis, who is going to take over shortstop on an everyday basis, is the guy that switch hitter. You can expect 15 or 20 out of him. So I think that there was a lot of excitement to go along with good pitching, that they were going to see some home run balls hit too. What would the uh, rotation look like, you know, when you think about some of the, the big names that you have coming back and guys that really kind of reclaim their careers in Cincinnati? I, I thought your pitching was going to be really improved this year. You know, the pitching is going to be improved because you have veteran status pitchers 
who are now reaching their peak age-wise. These guys aren't 35 years old. They're, you know, 29, 28, 27 years old. But you can pick one in 1A, whether it's Sonny Gray or, or uh, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Trevor Bauer. No, no, well, no, Trevor Bauer, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Castillo. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, Castillo was, was the, the start, opening day starter last year. Uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Bauer is on board. Obviously, Sonny Gray had a uh, – he got some Cy Young Award votes. And uh, so I think that those top three are guys that they really think are going to be um, – they, they would keep the Reds from having any kind of long losing streaks, which is always a real problem on a ball club that doesn't excel. Wade Miley was signed as a free agent, uh, left-hander for the first time in a Reds rotation. Uh, it's very exciting. And uh, it, it, it's kind of funny that, you know, you go one through one through five in that rotation, and uh, now you're, you're looking at maybe the, some of the guys who were in the rotation last year and the year before or, or no, like Tyler Malley, for instance, uh, who pitched pretty well at times last year for the Reds, probably looking at going to AAA. So it's been a long time before the Reds have had that kind of depth that they came into spring training, you know, looking to cut pitchers off their roster rather than add pitchers to their rotation. How odd would it have been this year, and hopefully we'll, we'll find out, but to not see Marty Brenneman in the radio booth in a Cincinnati Reds game, how, how odd would that have been, Chris? I think even more odd for you would be not to see him in the media dining room uh, because <laughs> a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, I think that the best 45 minutes of my day uh, is sitting with Marty and having dinner because this guy holds court. Uh, he has a great stage presence. Uh, he loves you and gets on you all the time. And uh, I mean, he can, he can get that needle in there and, and turn it a little bit, you know, sometimes make you hurt. Uh, but uh, that's he, the beauty of it, though. Yeah, it is the beauty of it. And the guy is completely unhinged, you know, when he's not on the air. When he's on the air, he's one of the best professionals ever. Uh, calls a terrific game. Reds fans are going to really miss him, I think, because it's, you know, little by little, the fabric of the game is changing. And when you lose icons like Marty Brenneman in the TV, in the radio booth, you know, you just don't have, you don't have the comfort of turning the radio on and hearing that, that old leather shoe that fits so well kind of a voice. And, uh, you know, things move on, certainly, but uh, there's certainly going to be a big void to fill. I want to get to your site here in just a moment, but a final question about the Reds. David Bell and his long history with his family, with the Reds and the city of Cincinnati, what would it mean on a personal level for David Bell to win in Cincinnati and to do it with the Reds? What, what do you think that would mean to him and for the city and the fan base? I think it would mean everything uh, for him, obviously. I mean, he's, he's always been a guy, even going back to the days when Dusty Baker was managing. Jesse told me one time, he goes, you know who's going to succeed me as manager? It's going to be David Bell. That time, David Bell was managing the double-A team for the Reds. Uh, in the meantime, he had moved on. He became the, the bench coach for the Cardinals. He, he's well-respected. His father, Buddy Bell, uh, is in the Reds' front office. His dad did everything from play to, to manage to – front office operative coach and so on uh, so the bell family very well entrenched in cincinnati it would mean a lot i mean cincinnati is a lot like st louis where you're really proud of your own when they do something fun and great and i think that that's how they would appreciate david bell uh the one thing that i would recommend you didn't ask this question but i i think that the one thing david bell you learn as a manager is that you have to sometimes follow your own instincts a little more than 
you, you think you do. Uh, anybody can manage with a stat sheet. Anybody can manage now with the, all the analytics that the science departments and the data departments are giving to the manager. But I want to see him take that one step forward where he begins to manage you know, people and, and situations and putting guys in situations where they can succeed by using his gut feel a little bit because he's got a great sense of baseball. He knows the game. He's got a great sense of being a leader too. And I think that this could have been a pretty good year for him. Uh, hopefully we'll still get to see some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Walsh has been working on a website that uh, defines the rules of the game. And as we know, there's so many quirky oddities and things that happen in the game of baseball why did you get so involved with the site? And tell us about the site, the name of it, and where people can go. But why did you start doing this? Well, I, I did it. And the name of the site, Dan, is very simple. It's Baseball Rules Academy, uh, baseballrulesacademy.com. I did it as a broadcaster because I thought as a player, I played 10 years, five in the major leagues, five in the big league, in the minor leagues. But I always thought I knew the rules just by being around the game. I'd read the rule book from time to time, you know, and I thought I was one of those guys who was, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable about rules than my teammates until I got in the TV booth. And then it was a quirky rules related play on the field. And I look around and I'm like, holy Moses, what, what happened there? And we go to break and I'm supposed to have the answer in 60 seconds when we come back. Right. And I would look through the rule book and I realized I couldn't find anything. I decided right then and there, make a database to attach slang words to the rule book. So like if a batter drops his bat on the ball, what happens? Well, I'd write it. So I began to develop this database. And I realized when I started getting into it, man, this baseball rule book is about as complicated as any rule book out there. Um, so it's taken me a long time. After seven or eight years now, we finally have come out with our second version of the rules website. Um, during a peak of a regular major league season, we're getting three to 5,000 people a day on the site. It's always free to look up any rule. We've got rules at uh, high school level, college level, little league, U-Triple-S-N, um, Olympics, and, of course, major league level. So you can look up any rule you want just by typing in some some uh, some slang words or maybe even a player's name or something like that. Uh, we've got an extensive database there. Uh, but there's also a premium membership level that, you know, if you want to take advantage of all the, the videos we have, we have close to 300 teaching videos. We have probably 300 uh, special case reports of of interpretive plays that have happened in the major leagues and, and how umpires look at things. So if you're a, if you're a serious coach or serious player or an aspiring umpire, uh, I mean, it's the place to, to, to go because you can take it with you, put it in your pocket and uh, call up any rule anytime. Baseballrulesacademy.com. Give me a, a situation in baseball that people interpret wrong all the time, but yet you, you see it on a nightly basis in major league baseball. Well, the first one that comes to mind for me is one that we saw last year during the World Series. It was game number six, inning number seven, when Trey Turner hit a little ground ball on the third base side of the pitcher's mound. He ran down to first base. Now, Trey Turner is a right-handed hitter, so a direct line from his right-handed batter's box to first base is in fair territory. He's running down the line. The pitcher picks the ball up, throws it, and the ball gets to the second baseman who's covering, who is his Guriel, uh, uh, at the same time that the runner does. And um, there was interference called, and, um, and everybody just went crazy. 
you know, you can't do this in a World Series. I mean, the analysts had it wrong. Uh, Trey Turner didn't understand what he was doing wrong. It took Joe Torre in a post-game meeting with the press to explain the rule. And this is one of the most commonly misunderstood rules at every different level, amateur baseball, high school baseball, college, all the way up to the big leagues. And um, that's one that it's called the runner's lane or the 45-foot lane violation and uh it was a perfect call by the umpire and crew in that world series and that's one that comes to my mind uh, right away that uh, people just don't know but once they realize that it's a rule it makes them a better player or a fan yeah define that then so you have the runner's lane in the first base lane you know where people say well he's got to be between the two white lines that's not necessarily the case is it no, you don't. You know, if you go to a big league game, you, you look at the first baseline, you see a little line that starts halfway, 45 feet from first base, 45 feet from home plate. And then it gives you a little three foot lane that is in foul territory. When a, now a runner is not forced to run in that lane. However, if he's not running in that lane and he interferes with the fielder receiving the throw, then you could be charged for interference. And that's what happened to Trey Turner. There's no rule because if it's a ground ball, the second baseman, and there's no way that you're going to get in the way of the throw, then there's no reason for you to be in that lane. However, on balls that are hit right in front of home plate, maybe a bunt, maybe a little swinging bunt or a squibber that the catcher comes out and fields, and if he's got to throw to first base, if that runner is in fair territory, then he could be cutting off the throwing lane for the fielder who's receiving the throw, presumably the first baseman. And if he is, that's when an umpire should call runner's interference. And if that, that's the case, the ball is dead, the runner's awarded first base. And um, a lot of people don't. Now, what happens, you know, a lot of what I see in high school baseball, Dan, is that umpires don't call this because when they do, coaches go berserk. They go crazy. They can't believe it. And so it's a lot easier sometimes to make the no call than it is to make the right call. But it's not teaching your players the right way to play in the game. How about a ground ball to a second baseman with a runner at first? How much distance should the runner give? Because, you know, you always hear you have to allow him to make the play. And then you hear about the tag. And is he out of a lane? Well, where is the lane? How does that all work on some of those kind of plays? Well, there's no lane really between first and second base. Uh, the, the, there's a, but there's a right-of-way that goes on in the base paths. And, and I think that's one thing that you're referring to. Anytime that a fielder is fielding a batted ball, he's got the right-of-way. The runner has to clear out of the way. You can't run by him and touch him. You can't run so close to him that the umpire would deem it interference because contact's not necessary. And you can't run by him and yell at him and say, hey, you know, Alex Rodriguez did uh, when he was playing for the Yankees right. years ago. Um, so, but what what you can do is anticipate what's happening. Uh, if you're a first a runner at first base and you see a ground ball to the second baseman, there's no play being made on you as far as the tag play. So you can make a big circle around that fielder and not be out of the baseline. So you would force him to rather than tag you. Uh, he could have to go to second base to start a double play. Uh, but the one thing you do not want to do, of course, is to run into a fielder when he's fielding the ball. And then how much room – you get three feet, correct? So if he's trying to do a tag double play, make the make the ground ball, make the play in his glove, tag the runner, throw to first. But that runner, he's only got three feet one way or another, correct? Yeah, and, and this is where it gets kind of funny. And I think that uh, those, when you start seeing videos, and that's where a website like mine it really comes in handy because you can see it visually – 
there, the, a runner has no base path until there's a play being made on him. So, for instance, if I'm um, taking a lead from first base and a throw over um, to first base and I'm caught way off the bag, I can start running out towards um, the right field if I want. Because where I, I establish my own running lane, so as soon as somebody tries to make a tag on me, I now have to have a running base path. And that base path would be a direct line between where the tag is attempted to be made on me and the next base. So it, it's, not, it's, it's not an exact geometric line from first base to second base to third base. It's where the runner is and where the tag is being made. That's when you establish your baseline. And the three feet you're talking about is three feet on either side of that line. So really the runner has six feet. But when somebody comes to you with the tag, if the ground ball goes to the second baseman and you're not there yet and he steps towards you to make a tag, now you have three feet on either side to try to get around him. If you can't do that, you'll be out of the baseline. Do you think umpires are okay with an electronic strike zone? It seems more so that it's it's sooner rather than later. I know you talk to a lot of the, the umpires for BaseballRulesAcademy.com. What do you think their thoughts are on, on that particular situation? You know, Dan, I thought there was a time when they were not okay with the, the review place. Uh, yeah. They reluctantly said, okay, we'll review home runs. We'll review foul and fair home runs. And now they're reviewing basically everything. And I think that, yes, uh, it used to be a black mark when you make a call out on the field and it would be overturned. But then the umpires realized, hey, you know, it is what it is. They're able to slow this down to the millisecond. I'm trying to make a call in real time. Uh, with just my only and my eyesight, and uh, I'm not embarrassed anymore. So I think the same thing would happen with the uh, robotic strike zone as well. Uh, I don't know if the technology is there yet. I think as long as the umpires feel that there's going to be a home plate umpire and that they can still stay employed, they're going to be okay with it. Yeah, I also like the idea of them addressing the crowd this year, and uh, obviously we're not seeing that yet, but on these reviewable plays – at least explaining it to the fan base because at times you could have multiple different reviews that dictate if you want to challenge another play. So it's very important to at least explain that to the uh, the viewing audience. Yeah, and I think the umpire is a little worried about that because not all of them are great public speakers. It's and not easy. The last yeah, thing I agree. They want to do is to get on there and, for instance, in football, when the NFL has their referee come and he gets on camera and he turns his microphone on, he explains, well, he's the one guy out of that crew that gets to talk umpires though they shift every night so it may not be only you know the 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 home crew the 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 crew chief that does this it might be somebody else who gets mic'd up and they're worried uh that they may not be the best public speaker and that they they flub a couple of words and it comes out wrong all of a sudden it goes viral and they they get embarrassed but i think that if people just kind of give them break give them a break realize that they're trying to do the best they can uh that they are very well versed in the rules and and and, uh i've gotten to know almost all the umpires and i can tell you uh, they take a lot of pride in what they do the same way the players do uh they want to be invisible and uh, they certainly don't want to be the reason a team wins or loses because of a bad call. So uh, it'll be interesting. But I think for the fans' sake, it'll be better whether you're in the, in the stands or watching on TV. We're going to get explanations from the umpires this year that we've never had before. Uh, final question, baseballrulesacademy.com. So we don't have games going on right now. What are, you, what are you trying to do with your site to make sure that fans are still engaged? 
Well, I'll tell you, I've come up with a program, Dan, and, and uh, we've had a couple of live casts under our belt so far. Uh, we call it Ask the Rules Guy. We're a couple of different people who are rules experts. We've covered some video and look at stuff and break it down and so on. And if you're a real rules guy, you know, you like that kind of stuff. But we're going to take it one step further. and We're going to have a rules challenge, a little game show. And uh, we're going to start with announcer versus announcer. And uh, I'm happy to report to everybody in St. Louis that uh, Dan McLaughlin will be representing the Cardinals. This uh, could get ugly. Several months. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure who we're going to pitch you up against. Maybe it'll be Lenny Casper of the Cubs or maybe it'll be Brian Anderson, maybe Tom Brenneman. Uh, but it will be uh, Dan McLaughlin, say, versus Tom Brenneman. And we'll throw out, you know, four or five rules questions. And we'll have an umpire there as being arbiter, and we'll have a little fun going back and forth. Nobody gets embarrassed, but everybody learns a little bit about the rules and uh, has some fun in the process. I love it. BaseballRulesAcademy.com. Chris, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Always great to talk with you. More of the Cardinals talk you know and love. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mack on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. You learn so much on the business side of sports from Dr. Patrick Risch, part of the sports business program at WashU. You can also see what he uh, provides at patrickrisch.com, also author of They Shoot, They Score, and it's uh, the perfect time to talk about the business side of sports when you have no sports and what that means uh, for teams, for players, and for the community in general. Patrick, always great to visit with you. How are things? Good, Dan. You hanging in there? I am. I am. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that obviously are going through a lot of hardships. I feel somewhat fortunate in the sense that, you know, almost kind of like the banking industry, the uh, academic world, there is a little bit of insulation. Although, you know, we, we learned today, as was, was uh, discussed locally, that uh, there have been a lot of uh, furloughs that are going to take place this summer at WashU. So that being said, um, you know, uh, all in all, feel fairly protected and insulated, but it's it's tough sledding for a lot of people right now. There's no question. Um, in sports and what's happening right now, give me just your your general impression of, of just the hit economically that sports is going to have, of not only for fans, not only for players, but teams, everybody in general. How, how big is this hit? Billions. We're talking billions of dollars lost, never to be recovered. The impact, Dan, is uh, clearly you and I have never lived through anything like this. And it's times like these where you really realize the interconnectedness, not only of the sports industry in and of itself, but then the sports industry with other aspects of the local economy. If, if we just first start with the sports industry and, and you work in media and you know how integral media's role is in the business of sports, you know, the networks pay for rights fees and the networks receive advertising dollars and they receive and teams receive money from sponsors. And all of these revenues help determine in the other sports, except for baseball, salary caps, even in a sport like baseball discussions of will we play in a bubble city? And one of the major hindrances are going to be, are the players going to be willing to take 30 or 40% off their salaries because the teams are losing 30 and 40%. So that's, you know, the, the, the ecosystem of the sports industry that I don't know if people really appreciate until it's gone. And now you see that when one stream of money is gone, it really impacts many. And then Dan, as you know, and, and, and you're part of this economy, 
that there are people that you know are, are whether it's temp workers uh, that are you know you know uh, selling food, uh, you know food and beverage at the game, ushers or broadcasters. You see a hit in their pocket when there's not a game. And of course, this means that they can't spend money in the community like they're used to. So this hurts local hotels, restaurants, retail, and the like. So it's it's a cluster bleep on a scale that none of us have ever, ever seen. Yeah, in a way, it's a house of cards right now, isn't it? It sure is. When you think of St. Louis, um, and we've had you know such great success as a fan base watching the Cardinals year in and year out, 3 million fans coming through the gates, the Blues winning the Stanley Cup last year, Sports Commission bringing in big events. Um, what What is it in terms of an economic impact of what's going on in our town? Well, for the individual teams, especially the Cardinals, Dan, they have the greatest financial exposure, in my opinion, because clearly they didn't get a chance to start their season. And if, if they end up going through the season not playing any home games or, or not having any fans, not selling tickets, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in lost revenue, lost ticket revenue, lost revenue at the ballpark on game day. Uh, hockey is buttressed a little bit from the standpoint that they finished most of their season, but they're still losing ticket revenue now, media revenue uh, from games that are not aired. Um, and then you talk about the spillover effects. I felt very badly, you know, the people, the sports commission, just as well as I do people like Frank Favorito, Chris Roseman, Mark Schreiber, they do a wonderful job bringing events to this community and then putting them on when they get here, you know, operating them. Well, of course, we lost not only first, second round NCAA in March, but we also lost the Olympic trials and gymnastics in June. Now, my hope is that with the Olympics pushed back to 2021, that we will be able to slot back in and just find an empty date for the Enterprise Center and, and be able to still contest that. And as it relates to first and second round NCAA, well, we'll probably be granted another you know, uh, opportunity to host in the next bid cycle, but that's four years down the road. Um, so again, I just think about the sports commission. I think about all the employees, some of the same people that work Blues games and Cardinals games. That's a bonus for them, Dan. When they work these events that don't come into town every year, that's like a bonus to them. So they don't get their bonus this year because those events were canceled. When you look at baseball as an industry, um, do you see, and I think the Cardinals clearly are, are not part of this group that I'm about to mention, but do you see some teams having the financial ability to withstand what could be a non-season this year? It's a great question. You think off the top of your head of markets like you know, clearly Tampa, and in Miami, where those two organizations uh, usually rank near the bottom in terms of financial viability, you put the Kansas City Royals in there as well. Uh, you, you know, if they're actually losing money, then then one, I guess, could argue that maybe they're saving money by not playing this year. Right. Uh, but but at the end of the day, uh, you know, clearly, as you mentioned, there are some markets that are very much going to be challenged. And, you know, when you look across the entire landscape of sports it's not terribly surprising that you know, look if the xfl basically now that that league has been dissolved largely because of what happened with this pandemic and the impact on vince mcmahon and his other business wwe what's going to happen to these other leagues that are to one degree or another somewhat financially fledgling what's going to happen to the wnba what's going to happen to this you know, NAS or excuse me, the National Women's Soccer League. 
really worry about and minor league baseball, Dan, you know, as well as I do that during the offseason, there was debate about are they going to contract the number of minor league teams as a cost savings measure? This is before the pandemic. So now what kind of exposure do these minor league teams have? Uh, I, I, again, it's going to be sweeping. And when you have been able to dive into the numbers, what, what really stands out to you outside of, you mentioned billions, billions is going to be lost with a B. Um, but I know you've done a ton of research with this. What, what's really stood out for you as you've been able to dive into this? Well, you know, again, it just, you break it down into various buckets and, I think the one thing that really jumps out, we haven't had any official cancellations yet, Dan, with respect to football, but all these losses that we we have talked about, I, I did an estimate of what's the loss in ticket spending and fan spending on game day for XFL, NBA, hockey, and if we lose half of Major League Soccer and half of baseball. That number was about $3.3 billion just on those things. Forget about wow. TV money. Forget about you know partnership money, corporate partnership money, but if you look at football, if football were to miss a quarter of their season, they would lose approximately across all their different media, uh, all their different revenue streams, about two point five billion dollars. So that's almost two thirds of what all those other five leagues combined are losing. It's so, so the point being is that that is really uh, kind of the next the next level. And I guess the other level, as it relates to a lot of people talking about college football, I think that's in bigger danger, to be honest, Dan, than pro football. Because with college football, there is a situation that's hand in hand with just students being enrolled. Uh, if you don't have students back to college campuses in the fall, then how can you justify bringing these kids back to campus to train and then play in games, even if it's in front of no fans? Uh, I, I do think that right now, uh, you know, pushing the season back uh, potentially till February of 2021, the college football season is a very real possibility because why? Because these athletic departments, they rely on football revenues to finance a large share of their overall athletic department. When you think about, um, the, you know, we hear, okay, let's play games without fans. And you mentioned it specifically with baseball, how important it is to have fans in the seats. So if you can maybe give our listeners an idea percentage-wise why that's so important, number one, and as a follow-up, then as you're going to probably tell me, roughly 30 35%, 40% of revenue for owners is coming through people being at the game, then some would say, well, then why put the games on TV? Well, TV generates a lot of money. So if you can dive into a little bit of those two aspects of this and why it makes sense to maybe play without fans and then the loss of fans and what it means for baseball. Yeah, I mean, you touched upon it. With every sport except for hockey, you're talking about roughly 60% of your league-wide revenue comes from the media contracts. So that's why you want to still have those games, even if it's not in front of fans, because that is your largest bucket of revenue. Obviously, teams would love to be able to play in front of their fans and generate ticket revenue and, and game day spending. But as you noted, that is typically a smaller piece of the pie relative to the media revenue, uh, usually somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of total revenue, just depending upon you know, essentially which, which league you're talking about. So that's the reason why you still want to go ahead and play these games. And, and also when you play those games and you're, you're on television, 
Well, guess what? You can still sell advertising. You can still have uh, activations with your corporate partners. Maybe not the same way you would if you're at the ballpark or at the arena or at the stadium, but it's still some additional revenue that you can generate. Uh, one other thing you asked me earlier that was kind of a learning moment for me is, you know, I initially thought, well, geez, if, if we got everyone just watching, like, for instance, the uh, Last Dance documentary, the first two episodes uh, set records for the highest rated documentary ever on ESPN. And it wasn't even close. So you would think that would lead to potentially higher uh, ad rates and so on and so forth. However, if we end up having a very crowded fall sports schedule, then that excess glut of supply of content is actually going to potentially drive down those prices. But nonetheless, it still would be revenue that the networks can generate, and you can still have some revenue coming in with the corporate partnerships, uh, with the with the with the brands and the companies that are partnering with teams and leagues. This this may be a tough question for you to answer, but I, I know you've studied and looked at um, CBA. You know the, the 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 combination of a, of a league and the players association of the various leagues coming together, getting an agreement, getting on the ice, getting on the field, whatever the case may be. The appetite for players to come back, in your opinion, what do you think that's going to be with or without fans? And also with that, do you think they understand or will fully understand that everybody's getting a haircut, so you may get a haircut too? Do you think they get that? Well, they ha I have to think, Dan, that they do, but it's just a question of, you know, again, all of these athletes uh, – have relatively short careers compared to the average worker. And so for them, uh, and then the opportunity cost, what's their next best alternative? It's usually considerably lower than what they're making as a pro athlete. Sure. Uh, so, so my sense is though they might understand it intuitively, they certainly don't want to feel compelled to do it. And, and if their contract allows them to try to stick to where they're, they're earning now, they're going to try to, but I would say this to you, uh, Again, if you look at the three big sports, basketball, hockey, and, and baseball, the three big sports that are currently on hiatus that should be playing, uh, the, 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 the decision is much harder for baseball because they're, they're losing a much larger percentage of their, their games, their regular season games, and therefore their revenues. And this bubble solution that they're talking about, Dan, uh, you know, again, I can understand why the big money guys don't want to necessarily take a 40% cut if they're going to be away from their families and there's still a risk of potentially contracting something. I could see younger guys that are hungrier that are maybe still building up their, their, their lifetime wealth might be more willing to go in and play, especially if they're not married and so on and so forth. But, you know, just imagine being uh, sequestered in uh, Phoenix, Arizona for three or four months. And granted, uh, there are other people in this country that make even bigger sacrifices that are away from their families for six months, a year that are, that are overseas and that sort of thing. But I can understand why baseball players may not want to go down that road. Hockey yeah. and basketball, a little bit different just because it's a shorter time commitment that they would be sacrificing. Patrick, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. This is a real busy time for some, not for others, but for you guys, it certainly is with what's happening in the sports world, and I appreciate you taking out a few minutes for me. No problem, Dan. That does it for the Redbird Report on 101 ESPN. Some incredible insight there from Patrick Risch, the sports economist located right here in St. Louis, to go over some of the numbers financially for these teams and what the hit means right now happening for the Cardinals, the Blues, and some of the other sports that were supposed to be coming to St. Louis. Also, thanks to Chris Welsh, 
the analyst for Cincinnati Reds baseball, and uh, check out his website as well if you like to get into the rules of the game. Really good stuff there. We do this every Monday night on 101 ESPN. Remember, I have hits with Bernie Miklas Monday mornings. It is Stalter and Rivers on Wednesday and then the Fast Lane on Friday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. That was the Danny Mac Report on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com.